It's just striving to be lazy. It's less code for me to write or maintain. And if I need to change something, it's just the DTO. Yeah. I really like that. That's kind of the big promising feature that I see of all of this. And it really makes approaching GraphQL on the back end quite easy, I think. I mean, that's what it's all about. How do you not have to do anything? <laughs> <laughs> and just get up and running quickly. So you can get back to reading React or whatever you want to be doing that actually interests you. That's the important part. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by Auth0. Auth0 is a for developers by developers identity platform built for the cloud era. They secure billions of logins every year. Identity is the front door of every user interaction and the login experience can make or break a user's first impression. Identity and authentication is never a set it and forget it thing. That means when teams decide to roll their own, they are taking on the full burden of constantly evolving industry standards, customer expectations, and data breach tactics. And they often don't have the time, expertise, or resources to meet those needs. This takes away from critical time needed to innovate and to improve their core product. Auth0 has solved this problem for every developer to give teams their time back and to make applications more secure. With Auth0 security, compliance, and industry standards, they're always up to date. Developers are free to provide the login options their users want with the security their application demands. Make login Auth0's problem not yours. Learn more at Auth0.com. Again, Auth0.com. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Our next front-end feud takes place at the React Advanced After Party on October 22nd. It'll be a lot of fun. You don't want to miss it. Find out more at reactadvanced.com. All right, let's do it. Hey, it's party time, y'all. Hello, JS Party. Welcome to another fantastic episode of your favorite show about JavaScript that's a party as well. It's JS Party, and I'm your host today, Nick Nisi. Ahoy hoy. And uh, with me today, I have a very special guest. This is Doug Martin. Doug, say hello. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Doug. Well, let's see. I'm Doug. I'm the VP of engineering at a company called C2FO. We're a fintech company based out of Kansas City. I've been doing open source software for about 10 years, had a few projects that have had a little bit of traction, but I've always been interested in building tools to make other engineers more productive. It's just always kind of been my MO. I've been working with JavaScript since 2008, starting with Dojo. So Dojo. <laughs> Nick knows all about that one. Yeah, that's right. So Dojo already did it. <laughs> but yeah, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. And um, we actually work at the same company, uh, C2FO. So that's awesome. We've known each other for, for several years, and I've used a lot of the JavaScript uh, that you've written, the projects that make my life better in a lot of ways. So uh, yeah, we're, we're here to talk about one of them specifically, and that is Nest.js Query. But first, 
I don't think that we've really talked about Nest.js on this podcast before. So, Doug, I think that you'd be a good person to kind of give us an introduction to what that actually is. Yeah, so Nest is a server-side framework that's really TypeScript first. You can always drop back to JavaScript if you want to. But why would you want to? I don't know. <laughs> I honestly can't I can't think of a reason why you'd want to. Um, <laughs> but um, Nest.js is it's an interesting framework. It's one of the first ones I found that really guides you into a, a nice architecture. Some of the things that initially drew me to it were that had dependency injection, like built-in first class. Mm. And the way it really has you organize your modules so you can expose your services to other modules, but you you can be picky about what you want to actually expose out, um, which is cool. It's built on top of Express or Fastify. You get to choose, and it kind of abstracts some of that away from you. Going back to the architecture point, one of the things that it does well is it provides you a place to kind of put everything. So before, I'd oftentimes find myself putting a lot of stuff into middleware and wasn't really sure, okay, where does this belong? So create another <laughs> middleware. But Nest.js, it really gives you pipes to transform the data that's coming in. You can do validation in there. You can do guards for authorization and then interceptors to find like logic before and after a request or a method. So for like logging, timing, where before you would all be shoving that into one place. So I really like that it it focuses on single responsibility, which is pretty neat. When looking at it, it felt like one of the, it was still relatively new, but it felt pretty mature in some of the design decisions it makes. Mm -hmm. And it gets me to doing business logic and the interesting stuff a lot quicker, which is something I appreciate. Yeah, definitely. There's a couple of points that you touched on in there that I thought were important. And um, the first one being kind of built on top of either Fastify or Express. I think I've only ever really used it with Express so far, but we do have a show upcoming on Fastify. So I'm excited to to learn more about that. But when you get into like an Express app, like it, it does feel like there's not a lot of guided structure to it, right? You can really just kind of create mm -hmm. your routes and then they're just doing whatever they need to do and returning things. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so you end up with a lot of structure built, like custom structure. And it's like one of those things where no... No Express app is the same in a lot of ways. But Nest kind of takes a different approach and everything is very structured. It has like a much more handholdy kind of approach, I would say, with like, you know, there's generators to generate the exact files that you need. Yep. And then you did mention that it is built around dependency injection. And so the first real experience that I ever had with that, uh, not really considering myself like a Java developer, was with Angular. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, this kind of looks a lot like modern Angular code. Did they kind of take... I think they did take yeah. a lot of cues from Angular. Yeah. Sometimes you'll see them reference Angular in the docs. And I think on the back end, it makes a little bit more sense yeah. when you're creating some of these APIs. On the front end, it, it felt awkward to me sometimes when doing that in the front end, but it definitely led to more testable code, which is one of the things I love about dependency yeah. injection is that you're not tying yourself to an implementation. As long as you're conforming to interfaces and stuff like that, you can mock that stuff out a lot easier, which is something that's really cool. So it definitely is composition over inheritance, yeah. usually. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I, I think that you're right. It does feel more at home on the server, on the back end side, as opposed to like the front end with like, you know, the front end, you don't really even touch like classes or class-based approaches anymore. But this is like no. everything <laughs> yeah. is a class, even things that 
you might just have a completely empty class, but your decorator has to attach to a class somewhere. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's definitely you know going the complete opposite way of of tools like React and other modern front end frameworks, which is cool. I do think that it fits well because it does give you a lot of structure, and maybe we could break down a little bit of that structure. So you mentioned like being able to use, what was it? There was pipes and... Yeah, so there's pipes, guards, interceptors. I think one thing that's important to touch on is that it's kind of transport agnostic. Mm. So as long as you have your structure in place, you can have REST, you can do microservices, you can do GraphQL, and you'll fill at home in probably each one of those because you can reuse your services. Um, And then for each one of the endpoints that you're exposing, you can throw a guard on there to make sure that only certain people can access that. Or you can do the pipes to convert a request parameter coming into an int or validate that it matches some format, which is pretty interesting, especially when, so when I started with Nest, I I was looking at REST at first, but I definitely wanted to start getting into GraphQL more. And so I created basically a REST endpoint and a GraphQL endpoint. And they they were both really similar. One's a controller and one's a resolver. Mm. That's the big difference. But then I could reuse the same services in the that back them. So I didn't have to really worry about changing any business logic or how I'm accessing the database. I'm just purely flipping that out. And the same, I think, applies for a lot of the microservices stuff. So yeah, you can have requests coming and you can connect to RabbitMQ or Kafka or whatever and really plug into that pretty seamlessly. And I think that's one thing I really appreciate about how they designed this framework is that they they really encourage you to have those separate layers. Mm-hmm. So you have your controller or resolver, you have your service, you have your entities and DTOs. It feels like a lot of files at first, but then once you start going, your files become pretty short and they're very pointed in what they're trying to address, which is mm-hmm. like we talked about with Express, <laughs> that sometimes got muddied up yeah. when they definitely encourage you down a certain path. Yeah, definitely. So breaking that down maybe a little bit more, you have like, everything kind of starts with a module, right? The module is kind of the main file that will dictate, yeah. it kind of sets up how the dependency injection will work and like what can be injected and things like that. Yep. And then from there, you mentioned like controllers and services. Can you kind of give a brief explanation of each of those? So everything within there is kind of a provider. I mean, so NestJS will expose in the module, you can set up what your controllers are and then everything else is a provider. It's something that can be injected into something else through the constructor. That was one of the most confusing pieces when I got started was like, what the heck is a provider? Because everything's a provider. <laughs> All the things are <laughs> providers. Yeah, it, that was something that was confusing to me at first too until I started to play with it and took probably 30 minutes or so. And then I'm like, oh, I'm starting to get it. It's when you start exporting stuff that it gets a little confusing or when it doesn't work quite as you expected. But it's pretty good about telling you what you did wrong. So you you create your controller and then you can have your services in there, which we say it's pretty uh, structured in the way it does it. But honestly, your services can be anything that's injectable. Hmm. And I don't think they necessarily always call it a service, um, but it's usually just a provider. So you could have like your cat's controller, And then you can have your cat service that then interacts with the database to fetch your data for your controller. And then if you want to throw a GraphQL resolver, you just reuse that same cat service and then expose your GraphQL endpoints. Nice. So you can really encapsulate like more of the the business logic of actually like Mm -hmm. pulling and maybe manipulating the, the data from the database within the service and then expose it through either Mm -hmm. a resolver or a controller based on what you want to actually expose. Yeah. And then in your cat's module, say you had, I don't know, an animals module Mm -hmm. that's separate from it, and you want to export or import or reuse the cat service for some reason, 
you could just by exporting that from your module, but they can't import your controller. So you can be really specific on what you want to expose that other modules can use. So then you can really keep stuff decoupled and prevent them from like dipping into your database. Instead, they go through your service, which I think is a pretty powerful concept because it's so easy to create spaghetti code uh, (laughs) when you're just reusing everything. And instead, you have to be explicit about that, which is something I do appreciate. Definitely. And so then you also mentioned like touching the service can access stuff from the the database and it's doing that through like models. Let's talk about that a little bit. Are the models, I guess this is where I'm a little hazy on it. Is it like specifically tied to type ORM as its ORM solution? No, it's not. So your service is really just an area to put your data access Mm -hmm. layer. You can, you can do that in there. And then type ORM Nest just kind of wraps this. So you do have a couple of things, um, but oftentimes you call it an entity. And this is what's stored in your database. And that could be Mongo. That could be, you can be using TypeGoose, SQLize, TypeORM, Prisma. Gotcha. You can really use anything you want. And then you just create your entity and then you can throw your different decorators on there or whatever's required by your persistence framework. So it doesn't tie you to those. It definitely currently guides you down the TypeORM path. I have some complaints about TypeORM, but overall, it suited my needs pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think I mean ORMs are tough, right? They're does that make sense? Yeah, <laughs> they're complex things, and oh yeah, I don't think I've met one that I really love. But TypeORM does seem to to get the job done in a lot of ways, and I appreciate that. Me personally, I've always been a fan of query builders. Instead of going full sure. TypeORM, then you can create your business objects, but then you can generate your SQL. I'd never have been a fan of writing raw SQL because then you don't get some of the type safety uh, when compiling or doing whatever. But if you have your query builder, which is, I mean, I have a Golang project that's fairly popular that is just a query builder and it doesn't introduce a lot of that ORM-y stuff, Mm -hmm. which I think just gets confusing and is error prone. It is. (laughs) So I agree with you on that. (laughs) Yeah. It's a very like leaky abstraction that can be tough to get right. But it is pretty cool. Like in the most basic cases, like you're, you're able to create these classes to act as your entities and like the, that will represent the data that's in the database. And you can have yep. fairly complex relations between like other entities and um, mm-hmm. pull all of that data back, which is just really cool. The other thing it pushes you to is a DTO or a data transfer object, mm-hmm. which allows you to decouple what you're exposing in your API from what, how it's actually persisted in the database, which is something they talk about a lot. So I think the best way that I think about it, it's like you have your normal DTO and you might have some fields in the database you don't want to expose to the end user for reads, but then you can also do a create DTO mm. that only has your, your input fields. And then you have your update and each one of those might be slightly different. And DTOs weren't something that I used a whole lot until I really started to dive into Nest and some of... Um, I guess, domain-driven design and thinking about how you actually do some of these communication patterns. And looking at the DTOs, I have to question why I didn't do it sooner. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Having the create and update separated from your model and then having the entity or the DTO itself for reads, Mm -hmm. we can have a single DTO that's actually backed by more than one table. Or you might want to store everything snake case in the database and then camel case exposing it out. And there was never a a good way to think about that without just putting that logic in your ORM layer or mapping the columns. Yeah. So they're really meant to be translated between the entity and what you actually want to expose. Yes. Or if something's coming in from an end user on the create and you want to expose that as a single field or a JSON object, you can flatten that out in the entity and make that a lot 
simpler for the end user and then store it however you want in the back end. So that's one thing that Nest calls out quite a bit. They're not super explicit about it, but all their examples have it. Yeah. Something I, I really appreciate about that. Yeah, that's really nice being able to to kind of have that separation. And kind of speaking of that, I wanted to also touch up on GraphQL a little bit more in detail because that is something that you mentioned that uh, Nest supports out of the box. Mm-hmm. And you do that through the the resolvers rather than a controller. And that, like, do you want to kind of right. briefly talk about how you set that up? Yeah, so... So like in a RESTful API, you'd create a controller and you do your get, put, post, delete, patch, endpoints. And within GraphQL, you have your queries. So your query endpoints and your mutation endpoints. And so you create a resolver and then you just mark it. You can decorate it with an at query decorator and say, expose this method uh, in my GraphQL API. And then Nest will then use all the metadata collected from those decorators to then generate your schema for you at runtime. Mm -hmm. This is, of course, if you're going code first. So you can create those different endpoints. And what's really nice about GraphQL is that it takes away a lot of the the boilerplate of like, okay, ensuring that you document everything with Swagger. It gives you a lot of that documentation and explorability out of the box. You can build a lot of that validation in. And GraphQL will just make sure that you aren't requesting things that aren't there. I, the query language that GraphQL provides mm-hmm. is awesome. I uh, really fell in love with that with the GitHub API when they started transitioning stuff over yeah. and playing with that more. That was really eye-opening to see how explorable it was and I could just create and only fetch the data that I needed. And Nest makes that really easy with the resolvers. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And you mentioned kind of code first versus um, what would you call the other way? Schema first. Schema first. Yeah. If you were doing schema first, would that be like where you're manually creating a GraphQL schema and then ingesting that with Nest? Yeah. So you'd be, I'm not an expert in this one with Nest because I've always gone, I did schema first at first and then I didn't like it, so I went code first immediately. Um, but you would write out your GQL file with your different input types, your object types, and uh, your different endpoints, and you'd write mm-hmm. all those out by hand. And then you could generate some of your DTOs from that. And you would also have to write your resolver, and then Nest will tie those together. Mm. But like I said, I'm not an expert in, in that realm because what I appreciate about code first is that I'm not double defining things. I'm going to need the DTOs anyway. So I write the DTO and I let it do the hard work. Uh, I don't, I don't enjoy writing out GQL files personally. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Yes. And that's why I was asking, because that's really the only way that I've done it is the code first way. But that also leaves me more time in the TypeScript world rather than writing GraphQL specifically. And it, it really lets the, the TypeScript DTOs in this case become like the source of truth for what you can query or mutate within your API. Mm hmm. Well, I find that I'm iterating so quickly in like TypeScript and I'm changing stuff in the DTO, especially if I'm like doing a POC or something or an example for Nash.js query. Like I'll be iterating on all those details. I don't want to think about the GQL file. I just want to be in my TypeScript, adding fields, putting validators on those, and then let Nest do the heavy lifting. Exactly. So instead of starting with schema first and having to generate my details every time, that would just annoy me. I think it'd slow me down. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. But no, I like kind of really circling back to that, having the DTOs be the source of truth. And then another really cool thing that is kind of outside of all of this, but then when you're actually like exposing this on the front end and you're you're consuming it on the front end, Mm -hmm. you can use tools like GraphQL Code Generator that can then generate the types that you need on the front end based on the queries that you're making to your back end, And those are all tied 
to that. Yes. So then you're not even generating types on the front end. Mm -hmm. Everything front end to back end is the DTO as the source of truth, which is just super cool. Yeah. I'm so glad to see a lot of the new code gen tools coming out to make life easier. I mean, they've been in the Java space for a long time. <laughs> I always felt kind of clunky. What's that? What, Java? I, I don't know. <laughs> don't worry about it. You don't need it. <laughs> what is weird about the front end to me for GraphQL, so you have your DT on the back end, and then the front end, everything is essentially a partial, right? You don't know what will be fetched until you write your query. So then CodeGen can look at your actual queries and create the correct types for you, which is pretty cool. I've been excited to see a lot of uh, the teams that, uh, where we work uh, starting to use that and embrace it more. Mm -hmm. It's been really exciting for me. Yeah, agreed. It's just striving to be lazy. It's less code for me to write or maintain. And if I need to change something, it's just the DTO in most cases that I need to change it. Yeah. And then regenerate files from there. But I really like that. That's kind of the big promising feature that I see of all of this. And it really makes approaching GraphQL on the back end quite easy, I think, because you're really thinking about it in terms of entities and DTOs and the translating between them and then exposing them. I mean, that's what it's all about for me, especially with a lot of these projects is like, how do you not have to do anything <laughs> and just get up and running quickly? So you can get back to reading racked or whatever you want to be doing that actually interests absolutely. you. That's the important part. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, to make that a little bit easier, you also have um, a project that you created called NestJS Query. Uh, and we're going to uh, introduce and talk about that here after the break. This episode is brought to you by Sentry. Build better software faster. Diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. Over 1 million developers and 68,000 organizations already use Sentry, including us. Sentry also recently shipped a new SDK for Next.js applications. Check the show notes for links to more details. Best of all, our listeners get the team plan for free for three months. Head to Sentry.io and use the code THECHANGELOG when you sign up. Again, Sentry.io and use the code THECHANGELOG. segment, we talked about uh, Nest.js and kind of what it does. And we really only scratched the surface because there's a, a big surface area, as you, you mentioned in the break, of what Nest can actually do. But those are the pieces that, that we're kind of excited about with it and like really leveraging it to empower us to quickly work on the things that we want to do and expose it so that we can go back to working on uh, more fun things like the friend. Mm -hmm. You also have a project called uh, Nest.js Query. So I wanted to touch on that. And it's something that we use at C2FO, like in our day job. And it really makes, uh, helps to simplify using GraphQL in a number of different ways with Nest.js. So uh, why don't you tell us, do a better introduction to that project than I just did and uh, kind of tell us what, what it does. Yeah, so Nest.js Query, it tries to make CRUD in GraphQL super simple to the point where you define an entity and a DTO and you're done. So where this really came from, I was starting a side project and I found myself creating all these different entities and DTOs and then writing every service and how do I filter this and making it consistent. And mm -hmm. it was a pain, at least for me, uh, because it felt like I was retyping the same thing over and over again and just switching out the types or modifying it slightly. And where 
a lot of the inspiration for Nest.js query, because I think the most powerful feature it has is the query generator. So it generates these query endpoints for you. So you can look up, like the main example in the repo is a, a simple to-do item with subtasks and tags and things like that. So you define your DTO, but in your entities, and then expose these endpoints so you can look up all your tasks and you can do these complex filters on them. Where a lot of that came from is for the past like five years, we've been doing something similar internally at C2FO where we had this, what we called a domain query. And so it gave you a lot of the basic operators like equal, not equal, like, not like, greater than, less than, all the standard ones, which is what you need 99% of the time without exposing all these database details and all these database specific operators. So we really abstracted that out. And that's the goal of Nest.js queries to make that really simple. So you don't have to think about a lot of that and you just get back to writing your front end and you can query all the data you need. It is a little opinionated. It's become less so as more people have adopted it and there's more features, but it's cursor-based pagination at first, which if you haven't used it before, it feels a little awkward, I think. But once you start diving into it, you don't have to maintain state of like where you're at with the previous offset or uh, limit, all that stuff. You, You really get away from that and you can just use the whatever object you're currently at, take its cursor, and then you can start paging from there. So it's really good for continuous pagination. Facebook, I think, is the one that originally pioneered it. And then we've kind of expanded on that. We allow you to do offset paging and things like that, getting total counts. Uh, You can aggregate a lot of stuff. So you can group by and sum and all those standard things. And then on top of that, you get a lot of your create endpoints and it standardizes between all your mutations, it standardizes and makes sure that everything uses like the term input. So developers aren't trying to think, okay, what do they call this parameter? It's the same every time, which I know I personally enjoy because it's so easy for teams to diverge when they're writing their different endpoints and you have one that names it the name of the type, the other one calls it input, who knows what they'll they'll name it next. Um, And so it really focuses on standardizing a lot of that. But the real magic here is that once you write your DTO and entity, you just register it with an SJS GraphQL and everything is done for you. And you get this giant schema file and it breaks it all out, but you didn't have to do any of it. And so going back to the previous theme, it makes us lazy and that's perfect. Yes, I love it. <laughs> so let me break that down a little bit to kind of highlight some of the things that it's really doing. You mentioned that you just have to create what the, the DTO for it mm-hmm. and you use a couple of different decorators for those DTOs, right? I'm thinking specifically like the filterable or uh, is it filterable field? Yeah. So on your DTO, one of the initial decisions that we made or that I made when designing it is that on your DTO, you might want some fields that are filterable and then others that you don't want to allow users to do uh, filters on. Yeah. And so we introduced a new decorator that really just wraps the Nest.js field with a new decorator called filterable field. And that basically exposes that in the generated output as something that you can do your your equal or greater than or less than comparisons on and actually query with. So I think that's the main change from the core stuff. And then we've added a few other decorators for your DTOs, like you can do authorizers. So as requests come in, you can provide an additional filter that the user may not specify to ensure that, hey, only the current logged in user fetch only their data. Or uh, you can reject requests and throw an error immediately. GraphQL will wrap that for you. You can do relations. So that's one thing that's different about Nest.js query. And one thing I don't care about in a lot of the ORMs is that you have these stub relations on your your entity that may or may not be populated. You're not sure if they'll be there. 
Next.js query kind of removes those from the DTO and you do it through a decorator and you say, hey, I, my to-do item is related to subtasks. And so instead of having the subtask field on your DTO, because it, it won't be there when you're actually using it hmm. until you fetch it. And that makes it really lazy. So, and I think it pairs well with the generated schema because with GraphQL, you're only fetching what you need. Right. And so we can expose those things. You can do synthetic relations that you may not have in your entity, but you can throw them on there and throw an additional filter with it and say, only give me completed subtasks or give me uncompleted subtasks. And you can create these two different uh, relationships on there, really decoupling your DTO from your entity and how it's stored. Yeah, I like that a lot. And kind of breaking it down a little bit more. So you like, you create those DTOs and the entities. And for like, if you just accept all of the opinions and for like a lot of the the basic examples, you know, the basic CRUD examples, that would really be it, right? You just then put those, yeah. assemble those with your um, Nest.js query module and it will generate basically the resolver for you and the service for you because it will know how to take that entity and what it can grab from it. And it will know how to take the stuff that you're requesting through like a resolver mm-hmm. and pipe that to the service to give you back the data. And then also, you know, we're talking about GraphQL here, you know, you only selected a partial subset of the actual data that's available. It's also going to automatically just filter out the fields that you don't need. So you're not sending back everything. It's just giving you exactly what you asked for. Right. And so when you went and wrote that code, like if it was just like a, you know, a basic CRUD to do example, if I had my entity and my DTOs for like what I want to except for creating, reading, updating, and deleting, that's it. There's no more code to write, right? Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. One thing to point out is you talked about it generating the services. Um, this is another design decision that I made pretty early on. It was separating mm-hmm. the service generation from the GraphQL layer. So the GraphQL layer only does the resolver. And then you get to choose your backend persistence. So we have adapters for TypeGoose, Mongoose, SQLize, and TypeRM. So you can flip those out and we just define a simple query service interface that as long as you implement that, you can really do whatever you want. So you can write your own custom service if you want. I think we do quite a bit of that at CTFO with some of the things that we do internally, but everything else can still be auto-generated for you and you pick and choose when you need to, Mm -hmm. to write something custom. So by decoupling that from the, the GraphQL piece, I think has really made it pretty powerful in what it can do. Because when I've seen some other frameworks, they they just bind it to type or RAM or they bind it to whatever that is. Um, and while that might give you some more seamless stuff, I think it makes it less flexible to pick and choose when you're going to do certain operations. I agree. That, that makes it way more flexible. And like you said, you can also kind of break out of that. If you need to do something a little bit more complex than just you know take the data and throw it into a database or read from a database, mm-hmm. that you could implement your own service and just have the auto-generated resolver call that. Or you could, there's other things like um, ways to inject yourself in. Is that right? So you can do the your own service. You can do your own resolver. Mm-hmm. We make it simple through the module that you can write. You you can have everything auto-generated, but like, for example, the resolver, you just extend our CRUD resolver and then you can start writing your own stuff uh, and you can override endpoints and things like that. So you can then start to inject other services that may not be there. So you can really kind of step back whenever you need to. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. And like another thing that I was thinking about was like, sometimes you might need to do a more complex like translation between like a DTO and an entity. Oh yeah. Uh, so we introduced the there's a concept we call an assembler. So this is the translation layer between 
the the DTO in the entity. And we create a default one for you where we just use class transformer and validator and we transform them between the two classes. But you can also write your own. So a, a common use case is converting uh, like from snake case to camel case or you might have a composite ID that comes in. You want to split that into two pieces and turn that into two fields. Honestly, I've seen a lot of different use cases for it, but those have been the most common ones. Or like with SQLize, we had to create a different assembler to turn it into the correct SQLize model. You couldn't just use Clash Transformer to do it. So it provided us a nice, simple place to do that. And that's one thing that's always bothered me when writing APIs before is like, okay, where do I put this translation logic? And you just shove it in your route. But that doesn't make it super testable. So by creating these assemblers to do that translation, you're testing just that piece with the input and output. And there's no question of like really where does it exist or where should it exist. Yeah, that's really cool. The actual code that you're writing becomes super testable because you can just test those like that assembler class in isolation, for example, without having to run everything. Mm -hmm. And then like a lot of the code is just auto-generated for you. The schema is auto-generated for you. And is there a way to use this with the schema first approach or do you have to kind of go with the code first? You have to go code first currently. And I've kind of done that on purpose, um, mainly because I was doing code first, but I suppose you could create your classes from there, but then you're, because it's generating your schema for you entirely, Mm -hmm. you'd have to figure out how to merge the two. And I think it's more error prone. Um, If you just let the system generate it for you, they're way less likely to mess it up. So no schema first. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. It's a, another opinion. And as long as you're willing to tolerate that, which I think is personally the way to go, just because I'd rather write classes in, Graph, in uh, TypeScript than <laughs> GraphQL schemas directly. Yeah. So yeah, it, I think that that's a more approachable way, especially as you're first getting started into all of these new technologies. Like the code first approach does is a little bit more friendly, in my opinion, than you know, just setting you loose writing a GraphQL schema. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that you touched on, uh, but I really want to like dive into a little bit more is kind of that pagination piece. Cause I think that that is super powerful, like not having to (laughs) write that yourself or like manage that yourself. So like what got you into thinking that that was like a, a key feature that this library needed? At the time when I was writing it back in 2019, cursor based pagination was kind of what they always pushed you down, but there wasn't an easy way to just implement that out of the box. And so one of the initial tasks I had was, okay, let's figure out how to make this as simple as possible. And so I started to write a lot of those, the cursor-based pagination. And then that was the only option at first. You couldn't do offset um, or just disable pagination entirely. Mm -hmm. So then as more features came in from other users, we started to implement these other ways of doing it. And over time, the cursor-based pagination has gotten a lot smarter. So out of the box, you can do an offset based cursor, which is like the simplest way of doing it and implementing it. And you just basically take your current Here, limit. Give me the first 10 rows and then yeah. give me, you know, 11 through 20 or whatever. Yep. And the way that works is that we just take that limit and offset and we base 64 encode it and throw it into a cursor. Huh. And so we'll take that for every entity that comes back and assign a unique cursor based off its position in the list. The problem with offset based pagination is if you have a large table, it gets slower the more you page into it because the database has to go through more pages and it's not as efficient. Yep. So then we implemented key set based pagination where you get to define here's the unique identifiers for this table that I want to actually page on. So usually it'd be like an ID. And so the real benefit of this is that we can then quickly create an additional filter that we just throw on there and say, okay, 
we're looking, if you're paging forward, we're looking for all records that are passed or have an ID greater than the one passed in. Mm -hmm. And so the database is going to have indexes on those typically. And so it's very quick lookups um, and you get consistent response times. And then with the offset, so if you don't want to use cursor-based pagination at all, you can always drop back to offset where you just pass in a limit and offset and go about your day. And then you can have the option, like I said earlier, to turn off pagination entirely. Sometimes you have a really small result set and you don't want to deal with that. So you just want to get everything back at once and you're able to do that. With each one of these strategies, offset and cursor, we also automatically include a page info. So you can get total page count. Uh, you can find out if you have next page, previous page. And with cursor, you also get the start cursor and the end cursor. So you don't need to look at every node in the response mm -hmm. or every edge in the response. So you can quickly just create a, pa a table and just plug it in, especially with a lot of relay support for these cursor-based pagination. It's plug and play for the most part. Yeah, that's really cool. And kind of speaking to that too, like when you're developing your your DTOs, you don't have to worry about like those, what do you call it, edges and nodes yep. pieces. Those will be automatically generated and put in. And then also like the, the more, I don't know, I'd call it metadata about where you're at, like the current cursor and how many records you have left, things like that are just automatically provided to you. Do you have to like, um, from the front end or like from a, a client requesting that, do you have to ask for that as part of your query? And it's just like part of the schema? Yeah. So you get to choose at the detail level. You can do, there's a decorator called query options where you can say, okay, here's the paging strategy I have. And in fact, you could do multiple paging strategies, especially for relations. You could do one that's offset and one that's cursor. So you could call it subtask connection and then just subtasks. And then on the client, you can you can explore the API and you can see and you can request that data back implicitly or explicitly based off whatever strategy you're using. And so sometimes a team may start out with offset based pagination and then they can transition to cursor pretty simply by just changing something in the back end. And they don't have to really worry about a lot of those details. Very cool. Yeah. That's kind of a lot that it does for you. And it really builds on top of the, you know, just the basic GraphQL support that, that Nest gives you. If you had to say, when would you recommend someone reach for this as an extension of Nest rather than trying to go just like plain Nest and GraphQL? Is there like a, a key feature or something that you would need to have before you'd recommend it? Or For me personally, I'd probably just start with this and then I would drop down to Nest when I need some more complex things. So this is going to provide a lot of your stuff a lot of the things that you'll need out of the box. And then what I find myself doing is then I'll write in an additional resolver and Nest will merge those two. You don't have to extend or anything. You can just write your own custom resolver and your own custom services when you need to do the more complex operations. But if you're just trying to get up and running with a simple app and you want to get started on that front end real fast, I would think this is the way to go because you're not having to write all your resolver endpoints, your database integration, your service. Like you don't have to do any of that. You focus on what your data looks like, how you want to expose it, and you're ready to go as long as you accept a lot of the opinions that are built in, which yeah. I'd rather not have to make a lot of those decisions. So yeah, just go with it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, like based on my usage of it, like it does seem like it is the way to go for just like getting started, getting going. And then if you have to get more complex with things, like if you really need to break out of an opinion or do something that's that's super complex, then it can get out of your way quite easily, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. That's like what I really like the most about it is like, it's there for the basic things, but it's not locking me in and like making me regret picking it 
if there's something that it doesn't support out of the box, like it just gets out of the way. Right. Yeah. It's built to be simply an additional tool built on top of the Nest.js GraphQL and it doesn't really replace anything that it does. It builds on that, that solid foundation that it provides. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you can drop out of it anytime you want and you can still keep around Nest.js query and then write your own custom stuff. That's, I think that's the really cool thing about some of the code first approach and the way Nest.js does a lot of that, that merging between the resolvers is the fact that you can have them live side by side with your own custom query endpoints which is something at first it, I was like, Oh, how's that going to work? Am I going to have to extend the CRUD resolver? And then I just wrote a separate one with the things that I needed. I'm like, Oh, that actually works. That's really cool. Super excited to see that that just, just worked. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by our friends at square. Square is the platform that sellers trust. There is a massive opportunity for developers to support Square sellers by building apps for today's business needs. And I'm here with Shannon Skipper, head of developer relations at Square. Shannon, can you share some details about the opportunity for developers on the Square platform? Yeah, absolutely. So we have millions of sellers who have unique needs and Square has apps like our point of sale app, like our restaurants app, but there are so many different sellers, tuxedo shops, florists, who need specific solutions for their domain. And so we have a Node SDK written in TypeScript that allows you to access all of the backend APIs and SDKs that we use to power the billions of transactions that we do annually. And so there's this ma massive market of sellers who need help from developers. They either need a bespoke solution built for themselves on their own node stack, where they are working with Square Dashboard, working with Square Hardware, or with the e-com, you know, what you see is what you get builder. And they need one more thing. They need an additional build. And then finally, we have the app marketplace where you can make a node app and then distribute it so it can get in front of millions of sellers and be an option for them to adopt. Very cool. All right. If you want to learn more, head to developer.squareup.com to dive into the docs, APIs, SDKs, and to create your Square developer account. Start developing on the platform sellers trust. Again, that's developer.squareup.com. Doug, specific to Nest.js query, is there anything else that you want to highlight or touch on before we talk about more meta things in general? I think the biggest thing that I, and it's not necessarily a Nest.js query thing, it's a Nest community. This has been the first open source project that I've worked on where everybody has been super friendly when they're submitting an issue. Like pretty much every single one of them is like, thanks for the project. This is amazing. You're like, yeah. they're not coming in and demanding something of you, which is so refreshing and to see the chats that gone in the discord community and the way people have just jumped in to help has been amazing i'm not always around all the time to answer questions and to then come back and find somebody else posting your project as a solution and then really hyping it up or answering questions on github um, and trying to contribute back is just really nice like yeah. i can't stress enough how great the community is in the nest.js ecosystem yeah so that's got to be a good feeling, like coming into a chat and seeing your solution posted as like without you prompting it. Right. It's just pretty cool. Yeah. This one uh, developer, his name is Scott, and he's been an amazing advocate. And he's also contributed back a lot of stuff. And 
he talks about being uh, coding just kind of being a hobby for him. But to see how involved he is with the community and everything he does to help push it forward is super cool. The other thing that has been interesting working with Nest is how many um, amazing engineers outside of the U.S. that I get to interact with. Mm. It from Europe, Russia, like all of Asia, like it's people from all over the world. And it's not just so US centric, uh, which has been really nice. And to know that I'm helping, my project is helping a company halfway across the world uh, deliver solutions is is really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. And that kind of gets into another thing I wanted to talk about, which is like, you know, developing tools and applications for developers. How do you feel about that as like, is it quite different? Is it more fun than like, you know, traditional, like, you know, client work or, or daily work that, that you, you end up working on? Is it a different feeling in general? I think it's a different feeling in general. For me, building tools for other engineers that aren't always the flashiest things, but it's like query builders, parsing CSVs, things like that. It gives me th- that nice feeling of knowing that I'm helping another engineer out yeah. without having to be there. Like when you're writing something for an end user or a business application, you're trying to think of the ways they could break it. When you're writing something for an engineer, you're trying to think of all the ways that they could use it or would want to use it. So it's kind of a different frame of mind, especially when creating something like Next.js Query or Goku or FastCSV. There's all these different use cases. And then when you get an issue come in, you're like, wow, I never thought about that before. Like I can't, it's really, you have to take a lot more time to dive in and figure out, okay, what are you trying to accomplish here? And how can I help you? Yeah, It's just a different frame of mind. I I love that piece of it. I wish I had more time to stay on top of everything all the time, but it's purely like a, a side project uh, to get my coding fixed. Yeah. <laughs> but doing that is, it's enjoyable. I, I just like doing it. Definitely, because it is like you're kind of scratching your own itch in a lot of ways, right? You're building a tool that you would want to use, but it just turns out that others would also really like to use it which is really nice. And coming from like a developer mindset, like, you know, you're a developer working on tools for other developer or for yourself that other developers find very helpful. Well, it's a way to put yourself in another developer's mm-hmm. shoes, right? And kind of get a glimpse of their job and like what they're trying to do. That's a cool thing because you can become so, so siloed in your own work and what you're focusing on and how you do it at your shop that when you get to see the way somebody else does it and what their problems are, it's, I don't know, it's like living another life for a brief moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's also something that you said, you mentioned like, um, you know, end users, like you're thinking about how they might break the code. I got to imagine that you would think that about developers too. How can I manipulate this code to do what I want? <laughs> yeah, you definitely do have to think about that, but it's always the use cases. And I found with developer tools, I spent a lot more time, and every engineer should be doing this, right? Spending a lot of time testing, but I spent a lot of time trying to cover all the edge cases and stuff like that, because this is the foundation of somebody else's mm-hmm. application. And so it has to have good test coverage. It has to throw errors in the correct place or handle certain scenarios. And so I'm always keeping that in mind when I'm releasing a new piece of software that if it doesn't work or, or breaks and I release it, I do a bad release, I could break thousands of applications. Like uh, I think fast CSVs nearing a million downloads a day or week or whatever. Like you look at that and you're like, okay, the impact that you could have if you break it is a little bit scarier, but also exciting. And so definitely thinking about how they could break it and making sure that you have test coverage for all that um, has always been super important to me, yeah. especially in these types of tools. Yeah, definitely. 
and Faust CSV being another open source project that you've created, right? Yeah, that was, I think you were around when I created that one. It was, yeah, it was. The CSV parser we were using at the time wasn't quite quick enough to do 10 million lines. <laughs> <laughs> and so we had to figure that one out. And then it's kind of continued to just be adopted, which is pretty cool without having to do, I've never been a marketer or somebody that's good at marketing what I, the work that I've done. To see something like that just continually to be used and to grow in the community is pretty neat. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it goes back to scratching your own itch and it just turns out that other people have that itch too. Yep. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. Taking another, another step back, I wanted to ask you about when we first started working together almost a decade ago, or maybe more than a decade ago now, you know, we were writing a lot of JavaScript, Dojo, things like that. What got you over to TypeScript? Was it like you went there as a result of Nest? Was it Nest, like you found Nest after Falling for TypeScript or? Let's see. I remember when they announced TypeScript at JSConf, and I think there were mixed reactions uh, at the time. And at the time, I loved JavaScript. I did probably some, I've probably created some projects that I shouldn't have, like a rules engine <laughs> written in TypeScript or in JavaScript. I think you remember Newell's. Yep. And I was a huge JavaScript developer um, up until I think about 2015. Then I started doing Golang. And then moved on to Scala and doing a lot of that. And then I wanted to come back to my roots, I guess, and start doing more JavaScript and uplifting some of the old projects that I had, like FastCSV was written in JavaScript initially. And so I wanted to look at what the latest technologies were and TypeScript was really starting to take off. And I had been doing type languages a lot recently. And I fell in love with how much safety it provides you. I mean, it's kind of like that warm blanket at night, right? Like you feel a little bit safer. And so I went through and tried to start upgrading fast CSV. And what I quickly found is like starting JavaScript first and then porting over how many things that you just ignore that could break your code or whatever. And the TypeScript's like, nope, you shouldn't be doing that. And so that's when I really started to fall in love with it and see the power of it. I mean, it's not giving you as many checks as a, a fully typed language would, but it makes JavaScript just a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And so it was really that coming back from type languages to JavaScript. And the other thing that TypeScript helped me do when coming back to an old JavaScript project, you have to build up this huge mental, the full context of the project to know how everything ties together, make sure you're thinking about all the edge cases. And if you haven't looked at a piece of code in a couple of years, especially JavaScript code, that's hard. So you're like, Oh, how is this called again? And then you right click and find usages and nothing pops up. And you're like, oh, that's because I did a dynamic lookup or something on it, and it's not actually referenced anywhere. So TypeScript (laughs) gives me the ability to come back and support projects, even though I'm not actively working on them day to day. Mm -hmm. And so once I really embraced the power of that, I'm not looking back. (laughs) Yeah, that's just a hilarious observation that I've had too. Like I used to to pride myself on all of the ridiculous like world building that I could do in my head (laughs) to keep it all like going and, you know. I just yeah. type it and I, I knew, you know, exactly what it was and I type it very few errors and everything. And now I'm just like, if I go back to a project that doesn't have TypeScript, I'm just like, was it just that I was younger then? And I'm, I just can't do that anymore. Or am I just so <laughs> spoiled now by the tools? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Either way, I don't want to find out. I'll just keep it. <laughs> We're getting old, Nick. We can't do it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh man. I think you and I were sitting next to each other when they announced TypeScript. You know, like if I wanted TypeScript, I'd yeah. be using Java or I'd go to a type language. How wrong we were. <laughs> well, I think we, we had the same reaction because we were also sitting next to each other when uh, when 
probably on Hacker News or something, CoffeeScript was announced or cre- oh, came yeah. out or got popular or something. It was just like, eh, why? You know, th- that looks cool, but why would I want that? I think we were sitting next to each other when React came out at JSCon yeah. too, or when they really started to talk about it. <laughs> and that was another one. We're like, hmm, that's interesting. And like, but then I, I automatically went back to, well, I could kind of do that in Dojo with widgets and the binding stuff in there. And like, Dojo already did it. But then once I started to actually use React, I'm like, this is amazing. Like, this is the easiest way to get an application up and running and create a cool front end. Like, <laughs> I think that's the thing that over the years, you're like, how many times I've been wrong? Uh, and <laughs> It teaches you to not have strong opinions. <laughs> yeah, you know what though? That's that's a great thing. Fail fast, and learn to fail fast, learn to grow from those failures, and that's how you will grow, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. But yes, I, I do remember that at JSConf. That was a a lot of fun. We were we were writing a backbone application at the time, and we were actually writing a almost a dojo like declarative syntax. Right? Remember thumbs? <laughs> thumbs. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're like, nah, we'll stick with backbone, and here we are. A decade later, a little less than a decade later, uh, fawning over React and, and TypeScript now. So, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Doug, thanks so much for coming on. Is there anything else before I let you go that you want to to say about NestJS, NestJS Query, TypeScript, GraphQL? I'm lo- always looking for contributors. Um, if you have any interest in in helping to move this project along, or you heard something that you might have liked, feel free to put an issue out there or just start going through an issue in PR. It's like, there's not a better feeling than as a, the maintainer of an open source project to get this random, amazing PR that just drops in your lap. And you're like, <laughs> wow, like that's amazing. You should become part of the core contributors. Yeah. So if you're at all interested in helping to contribute or move this project along, I'd love that. That'd be amazing. Would it be best to reach out in an issue, GitHub discussion, Discord, Twitter? Honestly, just start participating in the issues. And you can also reach out to me directly. That's fine as well. Awesome. Yeah. And we'll have links in the show notes for all of that. So Doug, thanks so much for coming on and um, chatting with us about React. Or uh, sorry, not React, about Nest.js, Nest.js Query, (laughs) and uh, TypeScript and GraphQL. Yeah. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to JS Party. We appreciate you spending your time with us. If you haven't joined the community yet, fix that bug at jsparty.fm slash community. Get yourself some comfy threads at jsparty.fm slash merch and take it to the next level by joining Changelog++. That gets you all of our shows ad-free, occasional bonus content, plus that warm, fuzzy feeling you get by supporting people who make cool stuff for you. Learn more at changelog.com slash plus plus. JS Party is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Next up on the pod, we have Node Technical Steering Committee member Matteo Kalina talking Pino and Fastify. Subscribe now and stay tuned for that. It'll hit your podcast feed next week. Is JavaScript, the language, suffering?